Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and keep it light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a cash app profile for the show. And one-time contributions can be sent to the show's cash tag, which is dollar sign Mr. Jeffersonian. And all of this information will be listed in the show notes page as well. Any contribution amounts help and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. And for my supporters, I recently introduced an exclusive tier for y'all, and it's called Mr. Jeffersonian's Ward Republic. Perks of being a supporting listener currently include one video call with me and the other Ward Republic members each month, and up to 40 minutes each call. It's a great atmosphere, and we'd love to have you there. All you need to do to become a member of the Ward Republic is start contributing today at the $4.99 per month level through the Anchor link, or if you'd rather go through Cash App, then you can round it up to $5 per month. Um, essentially, as long as it comes out to $60 per year, you're, you're going to be covered. And speaking of groups, if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. And just for basic group level access, I'm always going to keep that free. So if you can't afford to contribute, that's perfectly fine. You can still come into the group, see what we're discussing over there. We'd love to have you. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you that group invite. And if you're not familiar with MeWe's platform, contacts are the same as being friends on Facebook. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, and today we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Keith Smith about the amazing benefits of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. This is going to be the first episode in a trilogy dedicated to solving the problem with American healthcare. And Dr. Smith, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. And how are you doing today? I'm, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and just kind of give us a brief summary view of what the Surgery Center is? Yes, uh, I'm an anesthesiologist and private practice since 1990. Um, in 1997, co-founded uh, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, um, hoping that in control of the facility that the group of physicians that work there could not only advocate for patients medically, but also financially. Uh, we discovered um, in a very short time, the hospitals were not our friends as physicians, and they were darn sure not the patient's friend when the bill showed up. So we, we just decided to, to walk out and take control, disintermediate that whole uh, delivery tool, if you want to put it in, in a business term. And it, it worked out beautifully. We, um, we decided from the get-go that we would never take any money from the government uh, and that we also would let patients know what they were going to pay for the services they received. So um, we, we started with 10 surgeons, and we now have 115 surgeons. We'll be open 25 years this coming May. Um, in, and we were very successful early on and have sustained um, innumerable attacks uh, in an attempt to put us out of business by um, 
the usual suspects and the the state legislators acted as tools. The health department acted as a tool uh, to try to put us out of business. Most of the efforts backfired. Um, and then in 2009, um, they were beginning to take their toll on us with their continued attacks. And I launched a website with our all-inclusive pricing for everyone to see. And that, that was a radical move. Um, then looking back, it was actually more radical than I realized at the time. And that, um, that, that really was the launching point of what I would call the free market movement in this industry um, and all over the country. That's good. And I was actually going to ask, are, are you originally from Oklahoma or, or when you guys founded it, was there anything specific about Oklahoma state law that made Oklahoma the place to, to found it? Yes, I'm originally from here. I think that there actually is something uh, unique about Oklahoma. It's a it's a rural state uh, with Oklahoma City right in the center, and almost everyone in the state comes to the middle of the state, Oklahoma City, to receive uh, the medical services that they require. Tulsa's way up in the northeast corner, so it's not it's not the regional draw for Oklahomans like Oklahoma City. So there were seven or eight competing hospital systems in Oklahoma City um, when I arrived in 1990, and they were so busy fighting each other that um, this this more maverick sort of physician-controlled movement was allowed uh, to to bubble to the surface. So physicians in Oklahoma have been entrepreneurial. Uh, for a long time, and they've had the opportunity to be entrepreneurial uh, because the obstacles that are present for um, so many physicians in other states were just, they they just weren't there. So I believe that's the reason that that our movement was successful in our uh, service center of Oklahoma and many other physician-owned facilities in Oklahoma have been successful. Okay, and I've seen um, just kind of looking and reading through some of the the reviews and interviews that you've done in other places. I I do see that it seems like a lot of your patients come from out of state. Now, would you say that the majority are in state, or would you say the majority is probably made up of aggregate from other places? Um, right now, if you look at any given week, um, forty or fifty percent of the patients that come to our facility come from out of state. Um, at the height of the COVID scare uh, a few months ago, uh, well over half of the patients uh, at our facility came from out of state because the states around Oklahoma were relatively more uh, locked down and elective surgeries were relatively less um, accessible to them. So they came, they came to our facility and, and they went to other states too where they could secure the care they needed. When, when I launched the website in 2009, uh, the first patients to take advantage of that online pricing were Canadians. Uh, they, you know, they all have coverage, whatever that means, uh, but they just don't have access to the care that so many of them uh, require. So Canadians started showing up and then uh, uninsured patients from, from many states uh, showed up. And then the the other two major buyers that have sticker shock are uh, self-funded companies that pay 
for their employees' care out of operational revenue uh, rather than uh, purchasing an insurance product for them. And then the other buyer with sticker shock that's growing, um, and thank God it is growing, are the cost-sharing ministries. So all of those buyers, any of them that have sticker shock, including uninsured individuals or individuals that have a deductible that's higher than my entire price, um, those sticker shocked individuals or people that it doesn't matter what the cost is, they don't have access to the care like a place like Canada. They they come to our facility uh, regularly. Well, Dr. Smith, you can't be saying that about Canada now. They got universal uh, coverage, don't you know? <laughs> well, it's, I like to say the single payer that Canadians have come to realize they can rely on is themselves. <laughs> uh, they, you know, they, they have coverage. They have a card of some kind in their wallet, and it, it grants them a place in line. Um, that's all it gets them. They they have coverage, but they whatever that means. Uh, but they just don't have access to the care uh, that so many of them require. A, a Canadian friend of mine has told me the old joke that no Canadian is truly happy and content unless they're standing in line. Oh no! And I, you know, it's it's a disaster. And you know, I'm making light of it, but it's really not funny. I mean, there is just untold suffering from the delay or the denial of the care that uh, Canadians need. And, um, you know, I think that that with the regulatory state um, in the United States uh, gaining steam every year, um, you know, those those regulations are more properly called uh, by the economist, Dr. Per Byland. He calls regulations choice restrictions and I think I think we ought to think about them that way and all that does is uh, deny or uh, delay access to care right well something so I've been studying the direct primary care method as, as well you know the specialized surgery stuff aside and a lot of the prominent voices in, in the direct primary care space they make a very very strong point that look health insurance is not the same as health care and especially in America, I think so many people conflate those two where it's like you can have, you know, the best insurance in the world. But to your point, if you're in Canada and you can't use it, what what good is it doing you if you can't get access to it? Well, and, and even in the United States, I mean, there are people that are paying twelve or fifteen hundred dollars a month uh, with a family deductible of eight thousand dollars. And, um, you know, they may or may not be able to gain access to a physician's office because um, one of the big insurance carriers may remit to a physician or a certain specialty such a low amount that very few physicians actually want to see patients with that insurance, whether it's Blue, United, Cigna, Aetna, whoever it is. So the insurance companies will inflict uh, and impose pricing that is well below market uh, in an attempt to ration care so that there are very, very few doctors who will be willing to accept um, payment from that insurance company dictated at those amounts. And that creates, that that's a rationing tool um, that the insurance companies use uh, following the lead of their hero, uh, Medicare and Uncle Sam. Uh, the last um, Medicare payment I accepted 
was in 1992, and it was for the anesthesia services required for a knee replacement. And the check that I received was $78. And I, I knew that by then, you know, this is not personal. You know, they're trying to send a signal into the marketplace about what, it, what I'm worth, or they're trying to get me to quit. They're trying to cull the ranks with a message like that. The last cardiac anesthetic that I uh, gave was for a difficult six-hour case, and I was paid $278. So when when insurance companies or Medicare inflict and impose pricing like that on, on physicians, then physicians tend to shy away and it's it's a very effective rationing tool. Price controls cause shortages, and and the American people may not realize. You know, they've got a, a card in their wallet that says I have you know A B C D insurance, whatever it is, but they may not realize what's going on behind the curtain are price controls that limit their access to the care that they need, uh, and that and that's widespread in the United States. Right. And so that, that kind of leads to the next point. Uh, the surgery center, as, as far as I understand, it is a strictly cash-based for-service entity. Is that correct? Y'all do not work with insurance of any sort? We do not have any insurance contracts. We work with self-funded companies. I mean, we work with cost-sharing ministries, but um, no, we do not have any insurance contracts. Okay. And so can you talk about how that enables y'all to offer such drastically lower pricing in terms of like maybe reduced staffing needs and things of that nature? Well, the real reason our pricing seems low compared to the price gougers is what we don't buy. Uh, we don't buy television ads during the Super Bowl or the Olympics. And we don't buy out our competitors and we don't buy physician practices. Uh, and we don't have uh, administrators crawling all over each other with very expensive salaries. We don't even have an administrator. You're talking to it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the reason, the reason the prices seem lower or more reasonable, and actually they are, they're about one-sixth to one-tenth of what the local so-called not-for-profit hospital charges for the same thing. The reason they're low is from what we don't buy. What we have listed online is what we believe um, it takes to provide the care to the patient with a small marginal profit. And that, that's what our prices look like. Are they, are they low because I don't have an army of employees uh, filing insurance claims and chasing the money? That's a small portion of it. But yes, there is, there is no doubt that if, if you start um, if you start dealing with insurance companies, not only does it cost money for you to chase the money, but there's risk involved. Um, when you know we, we used to deal with an insurance company for a brief period of time, um, and we we do uh, we perform cochlear implantation at our facility uh, for the hearing impaired, and we would perform this surgery and. Uh, we would place the $25,000 implant um, into the patient and we would make sure prior to the surgery, you know, we had the green light from the insurance company and they were good with it. 
And after the surgery was performed and the patient had left the facility, the insurance company would say, psych, we're not going to pay you for, you know, we just think this probably was pre-existing or it's not medically indicated or, you know, whatever. And so, you know, we still were getting an invoice from vendor wanting their $25,000 for this implant. So there are real risks involved when uh, facilities or physicians deal with insurance companies. There's expense to deal with them and their risk of dealing with them. But again, this is all, this is all, this all accrues to their bottom line. Uh, they, they want physicians and facilities to be reluctant uh, to, to services because then, you know, they collect premiums and they don't pay claims and that makes them rich. Right. Well, and something that I've encountered in the healthcare space, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have because you've been, you know, involved in it for so long, is people think that the word profit in context with healthcare is a dirty word. And I mean, honestly, with the COVID insanity, I can sort of get that because of what we're seeing with, with the vaccines and remdesivir. But at the end of the day, for a service like what you're providing, I want you guys to be profitable because I want you to be there, but I also want there to be a strong profit incentive to get additional supply in the market. And it, it, I mean, just based on what you're saying, it seems like that's been a big hurdle for people who try to go the traditional route is they run into all these regulatory problems and that like, that's it. They either give up or they give in one, you know, one of the two. Yeah, uh, profit is magical. Uh, profit is a good word, not a dirty word. Uh, what's happening with COVID is not is not profit. That that's what a, it's robbery. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So the, it's just like uh, a mercenary claiming you know a profit. There, that's not a mutually beneficial exchange. There's a there's a winner and there's a victim. In a free market, both parties emerge better off. Uh, it's a mutually beneficial exchange. And and there has to be profit in that exchange for both parties. After all, you know, the patient doesn't buy a surgery unless they think after that surgery, they're, they're better off. Otherwise, they wouldn't buy it. Likewise, we would not sell surgeries if after the fact, we were not better off. We, we couldn't do this and just uh, tread water and be at even. But both parties profit. And it's important for people to realize that when you think a company makes a profit, as long as the buyer has a choice and enters into uh, that arrangement with the seller voluntarily, then both parties profit. Right. Right. Well, now, so with, with that... I assume probably the biggest benefit to y'all's end consumer, so the people who are actually getting the surgeries, is it typically the more so the turnaround time, or would you say it's more so the cost savings um, j- just as a whole? Because I, I guess the way I'm looking at it from a consumer standpoint is if I can get my insurance company to pay for something, I may be okay waiting six months to do it, but if you guys can get me in tomorrow, then obviously I'm going to have an incentive You know, if I need a knee replacement or something like that. So what, what would you say is the biggest value proposition to your patients? That's a great, great question. Um, there's no, no doubt about it. The access is, um, is a big issue. And if someone wants surgery this week, they can have surgery this week. If somebody wants the surgery tomorrow, uh, they can, they can have the surgery tomorrow. The, uh, the price, uh, you know, everything is compared to what, 
Um, if it's a sticker shocked buyer or one who needs a surgery now and otherwise can't get it, then our price is very attractive. I would say, however, all that said, the most important, the most important thing for the buyer, for the patient, for the consumer is the quality of the experience um, because people, people will pay more if they think they need to for it to be any good. Um, if, a, if a surgeon doesn't know what he's doing or a surgery center um, has a lot of infections and they don't know what they're doing, then the price really doesn't even matter. So while the value of an experience is completely determined by the buyer, um, I would say the quality of the experience trumps the price or uh, the access in terms of time. Okay, absolutely. And so that that does kind of lead me to another question, just because I'm kind of nerdy with all this stuff. With, with y'all having so many practicing surgeons, how, what is the actual ownership structure? Is it basically operated as like a medical co-op owned by the surgeons who practice there? How, how does that piece of it work? The, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma is actually set up um, very much like most law firms are set up as a true operating partnership. Um, the uh, There are 38 partners, um, but even though there are 115 surgeons, actually 117 surgeons who work there now, I think there are 38 partners and um, they don't, they participate in partnership distributions when we choose to make them, which is not very often um, because we've chosen, we've chosen instead to embrace a model where the surgeon receives a uh, fair professional fee, but the surgery center of Oklahoma acts um, as almost like a not-for-profit entity with a very slim margin on the institutional side. Okay. So our, our setup is very much like a law firm. If a partner decides they want to retire or leave, uh, they have a capital account and, and they receive the contents of that capital account. If a partner, if someone decides they want to start working at the surgery center, there is no buy-in uh, should they wish to become a partner. Um, they, it's basically a sweat equity uh, sort of setup. So it's easy come, easy go. Um, on the real estate side, that's owned by a completely separate company with whom the, the operating company has a lease arrangement. And the people who own that real estate company are partners. Uh, and I took volunteers to to see who wanted to be part of that opportunity. Now, I didn't tell anyone they had to put up money to own the real estate, just took volunteers. So, you know, I, that that's basically how we're set up. I, I told a lawyer friend of mine, you know, my fear was, you know, I would have surgeons as they got older come in and gang up on us and tell us, you know, we're leaving, it's time to buy us out. And you have to go to the bank and borrow money or set money aside for something like that. And he said, well, let's just set it up like a law firm because uh, law firms have anticipated that very situation. And this is how you should set it up. So that's what we did. Okay. That's, that's pretty awesome. And so with, with the people who are not partners, so just, just y'all surgeons who come in day in, day out, do their jobs. 
Are, is it essentially, are they acting as independent contractors? Yes, that that's correct. Okay. They have privileges at our facility, but they are not owners. They are not employees. Okay. And the reason they love it and the reason they want to work there is, well, I, I just asked them, how much do you want? I mean, for an inguinal hernia repair, for a cervical disc um, discectomy infusion, for uh, some oral maxillofacial surgery, I just asked the surgeon, what's fair? You know, what do you... I know what Medicare and Blue United Cigna Aetna pay you is not fair. Right. So you tell me what you think is fair, and then we take their fee and we add the anesthesia fee, which is based on time, basically. And then we add the fee for the surgery center, which is based on time and materials. And then we throw out this number, and that's what you see on the website. Okay. That, that's awesome. I, that, and that gives y'all so much flexibility. I mean, that, that really does give y'all so much flexibility because yeah. I'm sure, it, you know, if, if certain tools for y'all get cheaper, um, then I'm sure at some point that'll be passed on to the end user. So that's, uh, oh, that's, that's awesome. That, that is really awesome to hear that. Um, I did have one more kind of nitty gritty operational question. Do y'all have kind of like an average age of patients? And then what is the most t- common type of surgery that y'all see performed? We operate on um, all ages of patients. Three of uh, the four anesthesiologists, myself included, that work at the surgery center um, are pediatric trained. So we do a lot of pediatric surgery. Um, We see more and more uh, Medicare beneficiaries, even though we don't accept money from the government. So we see more elderly patients as time goes by for the reason you brought up earlier is uh, their difficulty with access. So they'll just pay our website price and and they'll get it done and they can get it done uh, by a great surgeon in a hurry. Good. So we see, we see all different ages. I would say right now the most common uh, surgery that we are doing would be general surgery. So it would be hernias and gallbladders, uh, thyroid, um, hemorrhoidectomies, uh, polynidal cysts, things like that. That's probably uh, the bulk of what we're doing. But we also do a lot of ear, nose, and throat and orthopedics, oral maxillofacial, urology, um, podiatry, some plastic stuff that's reconstructive. Um, So that, that that's the bulk of what we do. Okay. Well, h- how many ACL repairs do y'all do in a year? I mean, because with football and basketball, I'm I'm sure y'all do a ton of those. I you know I haven't looked at that number um, lately. It's it's not uncommon to do four or five in a week. Oh wow. Um, th- in the old days, uh, we used to do more, uh, but um, some of the orthopedists uh, that worked at our facility decided they wanted to have their own separate facility and uh, we wish them well and you know they're off doing that now but we've had other uh, orthopedists join us um, who like the way things are run at our facility but you know some weeks we'll do one and some weeks we'll do more um, ACLs but it, it just depends on the week you're right this time of year um, this time of year with football basketball um and a lot of um, indoor soccer results in ACL tears because of the sudden stop on artificial turf, uh, particularly in the female leagues. 
Yeah, that ooh, indoor soccer. That just sounds like a miserable idea. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, so that does bring me to my next point. Unfortunately, I do have some obligatory COVID questions. Uh, so first and foremost, did y'all see a dip in your patient visits throughout the past 18 months? Because I've read some reports that hospitals and surgery clinics pretty much became ghost towns because people were afraid of catching the virus there. Um, yeah, there was a, that wasn't the reason it was the reason was government edict. So the, most of the States, and I think there may be two exceptions, South Dakota and Florida uh, suspended elective surgeries for a period of time. Um, and of course, most of what we do at surgery center of Oklahoma is, is elective. The question is, was it emergent or urgent? Because urgent and emergent surgeries were allowed. Um, the governor of the state of Oklahoma uh, has moments of greatness. And one of his great moments is when he realized that suspending elective surgeries was a mistake. And he rescinded that decision. Um, when a patient called us and said, I have a breast mass and a bad family history. We decided that was not elective. We decided that was urgent. Um, and if it was your relative, I think you would agree with us. Yes. So, so we continued uh, to do surgeries, but at a very reduced, um, very reduced number for a while until the scare, the initial scare um, that I, I would think is, people would agree was overblown until uh, that wore off. So you, to your point, you're right. There were a lot of people that did not want to get out, uh, that didn't want to do anything, that put off surgeries that they needed. Um, and I think that I've had this conversation with several of our surgeons. What we're seeing now are conditions in a far advanced state than what we normally see. So the severity of hernias, uh, the size of a thyroid goiter, um, the, the scarring that surrounds a gallbladder that we're trying to take out, um, all of these things are more advanced uh, than, than they have been in the past. And it's because people put things off. Right. Right. And that, that is something I, I think we really are not going to know the full cost of, of all this until we get back to normal if that ever comes. But with the financial model that y'all have, I know you have additional flexibility, but how did the increased profitability help y'all weather this storm? Well, again, we are very lean. Um, and so we, we were able, we were able to, to weather it just fine. I'll have to, uh, to tell you about a year before this whole COVID thing broke something seemed wrong. And, um, you know, the idea that, you know, should we keep our powder dry? Should we, um, should we stash more cash in the bank than we typically do? Should we go ahead and uh, obtain some capital goods that, you know, we think we might need in the future? Um, something seemed to miss. And so, we, we held off and decided to stay in a very strong uh, cash position. And I, it was just a feeling. Mm -hmm. I, I can't describe it any more clearly than that. And I was right. And, and the, the partners I relied on to 
get their feedback about this, they they deserve a lot of credit because we we all decided to just hunker down and we it was just a feeling. So we had a good cash uh, position and we were able to weather this. We did not lay off a single employee. Uh, we uh, paid all of them as if they were working full time, even during our shutdown. Um, and the word got around that, you know, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma treats their staff uh, better than anybody. Um, and, and, you know, those are always good things in a competitive job uh, marketplace. No, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. So uh, aside from a gut feeling, had, had y'all seen anything in terms of, of volume of surgeries that, that kind of led to that feeling? No, not really. It was just a feeling, um, you know, and, and we've been, we've been through so many situations where we were attacked um, and it almost felt like we were in that spot where, and it's, it's our pessimism. I think at times when you think, well, things are going really well, there's no way this can possibly last. And that may have been all that it was. Uh, that, you know, things have been going well for a while. We haven't been attacked. Uh, we haven't had any bad press or, you know, whatever. You know, we have all these new clients uh, that are self-funded companies that are signing up. Things are really going well. What could now possibly go wrong? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's probably what it's because in the past, uh, it seemed like when we sustained the most vicious blows, it was during a time we were doing very well and we didn't see it coming. Right. So we've learned, we've just learned to be very cautious and deliberate and uh, keep our eyes open and pay attention to gut feelings like that. No, definitely. And it, it's unfortunate that in today's time that that is probably the correct mindset to have, or actually in this case, it was definitely the right mindset to have is, you know, when you're at the top of the pinnacle, it's like, okay, well, let's go ahead and prepare to be at the bottom. But right. it's, uh, I, I'm glad that you trusted your gut on that. Uh, definitely, it sounds like it served y'all well. Now, as far as the future of the industry, when you look in your crystal ball, especially considering how well that y'all were able to weather the COVID storm, where do you see this type of practice in, say, 10 to 15 years? Well, I'm, I'm happy to say that this movement has grown. Um, and what I see going forward are many more facilities that look like Surgery Center of Oklahoma or facilities that um, have, even in a hybrid way, perhaps embraced our model and have said, you know, here is what I do and here's how much it is. And, and I welcome the judgment of the marketplace. Um, my friend Jay Kempton and I started the, the Free Market Medical Association a few years ago in an attempt to grow uh, these ideas and this movement and in a very missional way uh, we, and Jay teaches his competitors and I teach my competitors uh, current and future on how to basically do what we have done. Um, we had our, the free market medical association had its annual meeting uh, just a month ago, Steve Forbes was the keynote speaker. He waved his honorarium, uh, told me this is the most important thing happening in the United States. If healthcare can be solved, and uh, you know it's a thirty percent boost to GDP. Um, Ron Paul was our 
speaker at the meeting before this last one. I don't know how we're going to top that going forward. But this is a movement that's growing. I think the Surgery Center of Oklahoma will continue to be successful. It's a little bit of the, the tortoise and the hare. You know, we've decided to do the right thing. And that means that the growth is very deliberate, almost imperceptible at times. Uh, sometimes we take two steps back before we take three steps forward. Um, but that's the nature of a more stable business plan that is not not some un, unsustainable bubble kind of approach uh, to this industry. Right. Well, and, and getting existing surgeons to convert to this type, you know, is, is definitely that that is a major success because sometimes it's hard to get people to give up an old habit. But are, are you all seeing a lot of younger surgeons kind of organically come into this style of practice? Yeah, what what surgeon to what gets their attention in this movement is when a patient walks out of their practice uh, after they learn that they can come to our facility, pay less, or if their employer is one of our clients, pay nothing. So nothing gets a surgeon's attention like losing a patient uh, to those of us in this free market movement. Um, I am happy to say there are more and more younger uh, physicians who are taking a hard look at this model. Unfortunately, uh, the scourge of medicine in the United States right now are hospitals that employ uh, physicians. Uh, and that way they're kept, they're captured they can't do what they want to do for the patients medically or financially. Right. Uh, but I, I would say, you know, the Benjamin Rush Institute, their mission is to uh, instill free market ideas in medical students uh, so that they're not contaminated uh, with socialist ideas, which are basically what all the teaching hospitals pass on uh, to the trainees. But I, I'm, I remain optimistic uh, these ideas are so powerful that, you know, whatever the supply is, the demand is going to be uh, is going to be the the sovereign force. So the the customer, the patient, the buyer, and every other industry is sovereign, and the demand uh, sends a signal into the marketplace, and the supply either responds or goes bankrupt. So I I think that. Um, because these ideas are so well demonstrated in the marketplace and other areas and in other industries, I, I remain confident that um, we will have a more functional marketplace um, in the medical industry and that people will thumb their nose at uh, the fools um, and the co-conspirators in government who have worked so hard to ensure that we don't have a functioning marketplace. You know, people say this healthcare system is so broken. It's really not. It's working exactly the way the overlords want it to work. Um, and Uncle Sam is is driving the getaway car and is part of the problem. So it, it's a real mistake to look to government to solve the crisis that they have created for the benefit of their pals. Right. Well, and it's crazy to me because, again, just kind of cross-referencing this with the DPC movement, it's it's insane because you really could relegate insurance to almost 
not needing it anymore. I mean, you, you could do a GoFundMe to get, you know, a surgery paid for at your clinic. You could uh, use the, the cost sharing ministries like uh, Samaritan's Purse and things of that nature. And it's, it's crazy to me, like so many people have yet to, I guess, encounter it. it but, you know, folks like you, you are getting the message out there, which is so important. I mean, it's so critically important to do that. But it's crazy to me because everybody thinks that the government can solve a problem that it created in the first place versus you and DPC providers are real world examples of like, look, if you get them out of the way, you're going to save a lot of money. We're going to make a lot of money. And it's a self-perpetuating system where everybody gets access to what they actually need from it. And I, I think it's a great thing what y'all are doing for sure. Well, thank you. And you know, it, everybody doesn't get what they need from it because it cuts out the bureaucrats, the politicians and the middlemen. Um, but you're saying that I think about the old libertarian, Harry Brown, who said, you know, government is that outfit that breaks your legs and then hands you a pair of crutches and asks, how'd you ever get along without me? Right. Right. Yeah. And that's how, that's how people need to think about this. Um, but yeah, it's very disintermediating, when you look at direct primary care and then you scratch your head and you think, whoa, insurance really has no place in the primary care world. And then you look at what the primary care doctors are able to buy prescription meds for if they dispense out of their office. What can they buy lab tests for? Um, and it leaves you scratching your head. And then you realize, well, wait a minute, maybe insurance should be um, reserved for those procedures uh, or that medical care that would otherwise financially bankrupt people. Well, then you look at our website and you think, wait a minute, if I'm paying $1,500 a month, that's $18,000 a year. And this hernia surgery is $3,000 on this website. That doesn't seem very smart. Or uh, you think, well, wait, what if I need open heart surgery? Well, you can buy open heart surgery. You can buy coronary artery bypass for about 32000 here in Oklahoma City at the Oklahoma Heart Hospital, which is physician-owned and controlled. So you think, well, wait, 32000 is a lot of money. Well, it's it's less than a, you know, a car or it's the same price as a car. But think about it. If you're paying $1,500 a month, that's 18000 a year. Two years premiums will buy a coronary artery bypass. Yeah. So when you think about it like that, then you start to realize, wait a minute, this this is this is silly. I mean, this doesn't work. And and you know why why do people have a hard time coming up with you know money to save? Well, is it you know the tax burden may be too high. I mean, so government is government is in the way. Government has created this. They are the problem. And and they're the problem, uh, and their pals, these cronies in the industry, are the ones who will fight this uh, with the largest lobby in D.C. Um, people, I don't know if they know that, but the health lobby, if you add it all up from the hospital association to Big Pharma, the health lobby is bigger than all the other lobbies combined, including the defense industry, which is astonishing. Right. Well, and it's crazy too because to to your point about the prescriptions, there there's actually a DPC provider up here where I live. I'm I'm in Colorado Springs, and their on site pharmacy. Some of the medicines they have, you can literally get them for a ninety five percent discount from retail, 
And, you know, it, it's just insane. And the more and more I've studied this, really, I guess to the extent that insurance does play any sort of a role, I, I kind of think it's only it should only be for strictly uh, chronic conditions. And even then, I mean, there there's some innovative ways we could try to get around that. But, you know, to your point, let's say you have that thirty two, thirty five thousand dollars surgery, whatever the case may be. We cannot underestimate the charity of our of our fellow humans, especially here in the United States. We can say a lot of stuff is wrong with the American public and, and to an extent. Yeah, sure. But we cannot say that people are not charitable. And I think. You know, with GoFundMe and stuff like that, I've read some stories where people painted as as like the, you know, the the most terrible of all horrors that people had to resort to crowdsourcing to pay for surgery. But on the flip side, if you want to look at that in an optimistic manner, it's like, look at all these strangers donating to somebody they've never met. And I think that's incredible. I, I mean, I really do. I think that is absolutely incredible. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And, and you know, if if someone if someone really thinks through the whole idea of how do we pay for stuff, that is a whole uh, lot easier to solve problem. If the stuff we're paying for is affordable yes, or at least more affordable, relatively speaking. So even for the folks who think that we need some uh, safety net provided by unwilling taxpayers, it still makes sense to to make sure that whatever it is that is being paid for is more reasonably priced. And the only way you can get there is with a competitive marketplace. So there really are two, there are two discussions. One is how do we get the pricing where it needs to be? And then the other the other conversation then is and then how do we pay for it? But if you if you have affordable care that's high quality, then the how do you pay for it becomes a much easier conversation. You've had surgeries funded by church bank sales and GoFundMe's. Um, we've had people show up with the money, and then when we heard their story, uh, we decided to do our part, and we just gave them their money back. Wow. Um, so we had someone sell their car in our parking lot so that they could come in and have the surgery they needed. And when we heard that, we just said, well, no, here's your money back. Go get your car back. We're all in. We'll we'll do our part. So you're right. I think people are naturally charitable to their neighbors, uh, particularly in their local communities. Yes. And that's another thing is like, even if you wanted to set up GoFundMe's at the community level, you could do something like that where where you have a small community that has some sort of dedicated pool. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be insurance, even though to that extent, I, I guess maybe it would function similar. But you could have like some sort of community pool where it's like, okay, you know, everybody who falls within this zip code, you're going to be taken care of. Like, don't worry about it. Now, there may be some strings attached to where it's like, okay, we we want you to go here because we can get the best price for the uh, for the best service. But there's so many different ways that we could solve this. And, and I'm so glad, I am so glad that you brought that up because you are right. When you're dealing with rational numbers, 
figuring out how to deal with it gets a hell of a lot easier, <laughs> a hell of a lot easier. So, uh, but that, that's fantastic. And, I, and it warms my heart. It truly does to, to hear you talk about you guys stepping up and saying, Hey, you know what, we'll do some of this stuff pro bono. So, but we have reached about the end of our allotted time today, Dr. Smith, but I do want to thank you so much again for your time and for coming on the Jeffersonian tradition. Are there any final thoughts or resources you would like to pitch to the audience? Uh, sure. Thank you. And thanks again for having me. Uh, you know, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma's website is is worth checking out. There's another website, the Free Market Medical Association, that uh, contains a tab called Shop Health that has pricing. Uh, there's another website, atlasbillingcompany.com, that has inpatient uh, pricing uh, that's worth checking out for people that are interested. And I, and I think people should... Um, should acknowledge the wisdom of Murray Rothbard, who described these free market ideas as not just beautiful, but very powerful. And it's and it's reason for optimism. Uh, it's a reason to believe that these powerful market ideas are inevitable, uh, and that eventually all of this uh, silly, unstable system the government has erected will will crumble when. Facilities like mine advertise uh, $3,000 hernia repairs when when the government system across the town from us charges $30,000 for the same procedure, I would argue, not done as well. So there's reason for optimism. Um, I, believe, I believe the market's place in this industry uh, is inevitable, um, and I appreciate you getting the word out and, and spreading this good news. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I will make sure to include those websites on the show notes page for this, just so uh, everybody can have a chance to kind of peruse it. So, but thank you again for your time today, Dr. Smith. And guys, please remember, if you find value in the podcast to consider contributing to the show, you can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page, or you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information, which is also included in that show notes page. Any contribution amounts help, and thank you again to everyone in advance who decides to do so. And also, please consider downloading the MeWe app and joining the show's private MeWe group so we can have more sane and rational discussion around historical and current political issues. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.